fundraising and philanthropy make a lot of people very uncomfortable. It's very common for me to meet people out in the real world, and when they hear that I'm a fundraiser, they kind of back away. And I think part of that is is our discomfort with money and talking about money, but a lot of it as well is how our sector and philanthropy has been structured does make people very uncomfortable. There are challenges around power and change and redistribution of resources to to impact. And today's podcast episode is all about that um, and how we can look at rebuilding the sector in a way that really changes the world, I would say more meaningfully and recenters around vulnerable populations, populations that are seeking equity, and what we can do about that. I'm Cindy Wagman, your host of the Small Nonprofit Podcast, where we bring you practical down-to-earth advice on how you can do more for your small nonprofit. You are going to change the world, and we are here to help. Today's guest is Jonas Hassan, who is the founder and CEO of the Justice Fund. And a big part of what he is working towards is reforming philanthropy. And today's conversation, a lot of it is around uh, specific it's, it's not specific to the Canadian sector, but it certainly uses examples from it, where we are talking about uh, donors' advised funds and, and foundations and how there is this accumulation of wealth that's sitting fairly idle uh, when the world is in crisis and how we might be able to mobilize those funds to do more good and achieve more justice. So with that, it is such a pleasure to introduce Jonas to the podcast. Jonas, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. All right. I mean, I feel like I should say to our listeners, buckle your seatbelts. We are going on a wild ride today. I'm so excited because we are, we're just opening it up to some of the more difficult conversations that need to be having our, had in our sector today. Uh, and when Jonas and I were talking before recording this, this is loving critique, right? This is these are hard conversations because they need to be had because we care so deeply about the work that our sector does. And we know how important it is that we have to fix some fundamental things in, in the way we work as a sector. So with that, Jonas, I want like, where do you want to start? What, <laughs> there's a lot of things I know we want to talk, we want to cover. What is your most burning, burning change that has to, that you think needs to happen right now in our sector? Oh, where do I begin? There's so many. Um, well, we're just coming off of, of a week where um, the charitable sector submitted their feedback on the disbursement quota um, to the federal government of Canada. Um, and I think it's it was an interesting process last few months, <laughs> I think. Um, and I think in the last week or so, the public communication of the disbursement quota ramped up, which was fascinating for me. Mm. Let's talk about that, especially some of our listeners are not Canadian, but obviously right. this is very relevant 
across the world. Um, so currently for foundations and donor advised funds, there's a disbursement quota. You have your assets as an organization and you have to distribute a certain amount or certain percentage every year to what is in Canada called a qualified donee. Right. And so part of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of uh, what's the conversation has been that amount is not enough. Our sector and in Canada, like these foundations and funds are sitting on a huge amount of wealth. So tell us about what set us up, set up the situation for us. Right. I'm, I'm bad at setting things up, but, uh, you know, it, in some for your international viewers, sometimes the disbursement quota is called the payout rate or, uh, you know, it has different names. But for us in Canada, three we are requirements or the minimum requirement is 3.5%, which is one of the lowest in the world. Uh, our neighbors down south are about 5%. Um, other nations around the world are at a higher rate or don't even have a disbursement quota to begin with. Um, so the, the past, I would say, month or so, a lot of folks in the sector have been submitting their um, positions on whether or not to increase the disbursement quota to the federal government. Some of those uh, feedback or submissions were public. Um, and it was very telling for me to see who and or what organizations were recommending changes to the disbursement quota. Mm -hmm. And those that were, you know, diplomatically placating their responsibilities uh, in very, very nicely written words uh, <laughs> on why we should not increase the disbursement quota. Um, it was all semantics, I think, you know. Um, it's people that have power, privilege, and benefit from the current way that the system is designed. Um, so family offices, those that manage philanthropic assets, private foundations, those with money, um, are the ones who are most likely to not recommend a change versus, mm -hmm. you know, organizations like ourselves, you know, that are on the front lines, that are working with frontline communities that recognize that we need these assets in our community's hands to service, um, to accomplish the missions that we're trying to achieve. We're trying to work ourselves out of a job. And it's mm -hmm. frustrating to see a philanthropic community justify, you know, not increasing the disbursement quota as a way to preserve capital. You're preserving capital is us preserving violence, food insecurity, lack of affordable housing in our neighborhoods. All right. So one of the things you said, I think really stood out to me. You said, those of us on the front lines, we're trying to work our, ourselves out of a job, right? We're trying to enact meaningful and deep and swift change to help people, to save lives, to change things. Save, protect the environment, whatever, whatever we're working on. And to me, it's, it feels like a lot of the people who have those funds um, and the nature of an endowment is that it is, it, it, it's everlasting. And so, and I understand, and I'm going to, you know, play devil's advocate, which is like, you know, new challenges are going to come up and, you know, all of these things, but wealth is not going away. You know, there's more and more people generating more and more money, but the issues that we need to solve for today are urgent. And so it's this really interesting tension between the idea of legacy, longevity, um, ongoing impact versus the real needs and uh, 
I mean, really the amount of wealth that is sitting there that could be deployed to the front lines. So it's such an interesting conversation. And, and again, I, yeah, pipe in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like this issue of perpetuity um, in endowments drives me absolutely crazy. There's absolutely nothing about the natural order that is forever, right? Uh, I think it's absolutely hubris and self-serving for foundations to think that, that you know, them preserving their capital over a long period of time is uh, in the best interest of the public. It's not. Get over yourselves. There's going to be new money. There's going to be more money coming into this sector. There's going to be, you know, more innovation, more, uh, you know, creativity, more risk taking. But we need you to have these abundance of taxpayer assets because it is taxpayer assets um, to use it in a timely manner. When, when we have a plethora of crises facing our communities in this country and a philanthropic community sitting on the sidelines trying to justify why it's hard to give away money. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I have zero faith in their ability to self-regulate or reform. So I expect the federal government of Canada to step in here. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not that we're questioning individual foundations or individual philanthropists because there's plenty of those folks in the sector that are doing such transformational work. But it's a disservice to that work that do they're doing if the collective sector is not stepping up. Mm -hmm. So this is now gone uh, as part of this submission and, and the public, although it's interesting because I really don't think the public knew very much about these submissions until the very last minute. But now uh, submissions have gone through to the federal government here. Um, but let's talk about that more broadly, because, you know, these, this is just one sort of lever that I know that you're working on within this charitable sector to change the status quo. And I want you to Tell me a little bit about why changing the status quo is important. Who is this serving that hasn't been served before? Well, for us, you know, at, at our core, our organization, it, our mandate is to support communities in conflict with the law. In essence, we're an anti-violence organization. And for me, uh, our communities are suffering. You know, we've faced a tremendous amount of violence over the last few years. Um, I think it's over 170% gun violence in the city of Toronto has increased. Um, and that's because our neighborhoods and our communities are socially, politically, and economically segregated. Toronto is the fourth largest city in North America. It's the second largest financial hub. And yet, you know, uh, we have pockets in this city that have you know, decaying housing, lack of that are food apartheid neighborhoods that have lack of transit. Um, and, you know, for me, these little one off interventions are not going to do anything. Twenty five thousand dollars for a community program is nothing. Um, I don't want your your your, you know, your gifts that say that they're only for programming. I don't want your restrictive, uh, you know, photo ops and like I want the philanthropic community that has all these resources to tackle the problems that exist in these neighborhoods with the same type of due diligence and veracity that they tackle, you know, the multiple capital campaigns that universities have or the multiple capital campaigns that um, hospitals have. 
right? Mm-hmm. It should be the responsibility of the federal provincial government of Canada to ensure that we have a good education system, that we have a great healthcare system. It's not the philanthropic communities. Philanthropic communities' job is to, you know, fill the gaps that exist in these neighborhoods um, that government is not filling and do it with transformational gifts or even major gifts, right? I don't care for your, you know, GoFundMe campaigns that you support, right? I want a philanthropist to commit $50 million to tackling gun violence in this one particular neighborhood. I want someone to put that same commitment uh, and validate the work that these frontline organizations and these community organizations are doing. Majority of the organizations in this sector that are hurting right now are those frontline organizations. They're the ones that are being forced to close. They're the ones that are working on, you know, volunteer, um, their executives are working on volunteer hours. They're the ones that are going to be forced to close or merge, right? Um, it's not United Way. It's not YWMCA. It's not these big national, it's not Boys and Girls Club of Canada. It's not these big, big national organizations that are going to be the ones suffering. It's those community organizations, the ones that you restrict and make you know, jump through hoops for your, these taxpayer assets that you've been given the privilege of deciding when and where to allocate. Might have gone on a little rant there. No, I love it. Get, and I, I mean, the that's, those are the organizations that are listening, right? And so yeah. I'd love, I, I wanted to go in a different direction, but I actually really feel like, well, okay, I wanted to make a point and then I'll, I'll ask this. So the first point is the day we're recording this is October 1st. It's not airing obviously today, but we are coming off of our first national day of truth and truth and reconciliation in Canada. And, you know, just case in point, the amount of philanthropic funding that goes to indigenous communities and indigenous led organizations is minuscule. You know, we sit in shock and in horror of it's still, you know, a lot of, you know, we can't talk about this as a historical time in Canada. This is currently what we are living through and what indigenous communities are living through uh, and what they experience. And again, there's all of this wealth that is sitting there locked away that could be redistributed and really in, in, you know, hopefully solve for some of the problems that communities are experiencing. So I, I, I just wanted to point that out because I think the, you know, social media turning orange and all that kind of stuff is just one little, little, little thing. And I, I, you know, don't want to minimize it because it's important to have that sort of public presence, but there's so much more we can be doing so much more. Absolutely. And I think it's time that we in this sector, you know, there's the sector rep- presents 10% of Canada's working population. Um, there's over 86,000 charities in this country. Um, there's over 10,000 foundations in this country. I think it's time to step back and have an open and honest conversation about the role that the charitable sector slash philanthropy has played um, in harming Indigenous communities. We allow ourselves to be governed by laws that are built on exploitation, extraction, um, and the genocide of Indigenous communities, particularly in the philanthropic space. You know, uh, Chris Archer from the Circle on uh, Philanthropy talks about settler philanthropy a lot. Um, and that's exactly what this is. Those in this sector, particularly a lot of these older foundations, are the ones that have either funded or sustained the existence of residential schools. The last residential school closed in 1997. A lot of these foundations existed before that and funded those schools, right? Uh, 
So, you know, yeah, they can go on their own journey to, you know, acknowledge what their ancestors have done or what their foundation has done. Um, but collectively as a sector, we, we need to step up and have an open and honest conversation about the charitable laws and how mm-hmm. they contribute towards um, discrimination and the continued uh, uh, oppression of Indigenous communities across this country. I find it ridiculous that more money goes to BYU University um, in the United States than all Indigenous organizations in this country receive from the philanthropic community. I think it's very telling about who and uh, where these philanthropics go to and who is allocating these philanthropic assets, right? Um, We've given private foundations in this country, private and public foundations in this country, the privilege of deciding when and where to allocate these assets. And they have clearly done it um, to a disservice to communities in need, including indigenous communities that have had, you know, decades, intergenerational boil water advisories. Um, And I I think it's time for the philanthropic community to uh, move beyond virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, such an important, I mean, first of all, I had no idea that that was the case with the university in Utah. Uh, and, and that that's just wild, but I think, you know, part of, part of what we're talking about is I think the role that philanthropy has, has played as a system in upholding power structures, you know, very often we're taught that Fun, philanthropy is about um, redistribution of wealth and of power uh, for quote unquote good or social good, but that isn't actually how the systems have worked. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, like I would, a lot of the harm caused by the philanthropic community is self imposed. There's absolutely no reason why we grant the way that we grant. There's absolutely no reason why we ask organizations to report the way that they report. We as a philanthropic sector or a charitable sector impose these barriers on community organizations that are trying to do their jobs, right? And over the last, you know, five to 10 years, we've seen this new pseudo-intellectualization of the sector where we're putting all these, you know, key performance indicators and uh, ridiculous measurements uh, to community organizations that are just trying to do their jobs, right? Um, I think, you know, and just beyond the way that we grant or manage relationships with community organizations, we have to step back and think about how these assets are actually invested in the stock market, right? Um, If these assets, as according to the Federal Government Income Tax Act, are designated to serve a charitable purpose, I have a very hard time justifying how using those assets to invest in the stock market, to invest in fossil fuels or the extraction sector is justifying a charitable purpose. It's not, right? I think, you know, and the counter argument would be, well, money's increasing. Well, just because the money's increasing, your base is increasing, your interest is increasing, doesn't mean that increased, um, to the betterment of our society. Absolutely not. Yeah. With over $85 billion of charitable assets in this country, we can be using that to invest in affordable housing, to invest in climate financing, to invest in transit, to invest in cooperatives, but we choose not to. So mm. again, 
expecting the federal government to implement some changes to hold us accountable, to hold the philanthropic sector accountable. Mm. To your point, though, I I mean, yeah, and hopefully the the government does. But and again, like I'm not trying to hide my my bias and perspective here. I fully support all the things that we're talking about. Um, and we talk about a broken system, but individually, I think a lot of people still have power and decision to make personal changes towards the, you know, to do it better, even without that regulation. And of course, we all want to believe that we're all capable of doing better without being forced to do better. Do you have any organizations that you've seen who are um, going above and beyond, again, what's regulated or who have, you know, started, I've heard terms like trust-based philanthropy um, or, you know, organizations who are actually doing this without uh, having their hand forced to do so. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, well, less and less in Canada, more and more in the United States and mm-hmm. Europe, because, you know, our country is a country of mediocrity, even within the charitable space. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting conversations going on. Trust-based philanthropy is an interesting one. You know, we're we practice trust-based philanthropy. We're big proponents of trust-based philanthropy. And for those that don't know, you know, trust-based philanthropy are six principles of, uh, you know, rethinking how we work with community organizations as funders. Um, so multi-year agreements, unrestricted granting, simplifying the application process, simplifying the reporting process. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm forgetting one or two there, but you get the gist. Mm-hmm. I my biggest concern with these, you know, approaches or discussions or even terminologies or new lexicon that's being added to the sector is that they become buzzwords. Mm. And I've already seen that started happening. I've already seen you know, foundations doing these webinars talking about how they're investing in communities and how they're using trust-based philanthropy when I know and they know that they don't do multi-year agreements, that they don't do unrestricted mm. granting, that they have ridiculous applications and reporting processes. Um, so, you know, we are a sector of monkey see, monkey do. We tend to copy not what we do or what we each other do, but what other countries do first. Um, so <laughs> we'll see. I, I think like, you know, some of the stuff that's happening in the UK around impact investing, a lot of that will be adapted in Canada five, six, 10 years from now, uh, again, because we're mediocre. Um, a lot of the stuff that's happening in the United States and California around, you know, uh, full cost funding or, you know, impact in, or like, you know, trust-based philanthropy or other forms of, you know, uh, abolition work within the philanthropic space, that stuff will never happen here, right? We don't have the appetite. <laughs> We don't have the desire. And frankly, I think the sector does not have the courage, um, particularly with those that have power and leadership to do this. Right. Mm. It's very like this whole conversation about the disbursement code over the last six months is very interesting because it seems like it started a mini civil war amongst certain sects of the philanthropic space. Mm. Um, and of that little disbursement quota, you know, is, is causing a kerfuffle. Right. Like don't introduce multi-year funding because damn it, like that's gonna just create the you know like it's gonna break some people's hearts, right? Like and like it's (laughs) frustrating because those philanthropists or those in the philanthropic space know where we're at post-pandemic, not even post-pandemic, we're still in a pandemic, but like 
they know what tremendous trauma harm has been caused, um, not only domestically, but globally, right? Um, we have a responsibility as Canadians to do our part uh, to help solve the, um, you know, the, the many crises that we are actually responsible for, particularly around climate change, right? Mm -hmm. um, cl you know, these, these climate crises that are happening right now, we're just seeing the first few waves uh, if you look at, you know, countries in the global south, uh, particularly in, you know, uh, Southeast Asia and Africa, they are suffering from, you know, droughts and floods and uh, famines that they've never experienced historically. And that's because of climate change. And that's because of our indifference. And that's because of the apathy that the philanthropic community of Canada has shown. Right? Mm. So I want to ask, we're running out of time, but one thing I want to ask is so you mentioned you know we need courage and we need our sector leaders and those in power to show courage but you know i know that our listeners they're working in and running small nonprofits and very often don't think of themselves as being in a position to have influence as being in a position to affect these changes. And I'd love for you to like, I'd love to wrap up the conversation talking a little bit about, you know, outside of this consultative process, which is pretty much over uh, around the disbursement quota, but obviously it's so much more than just the disbursement quota. What can, what can little old me do? You know, how can we work together as a sector to start to change things? My favorite question. There are over 86,000 charities in this country. 10% of our working population in this country works in the charitable sector. 70% um, of which are women. We have a tremendous opportunity in the next, I would say, eight to 18 months to do some comprehensive philanthropic sector reform. And I mean like big, big changes. So whether you are a grassroots organization, an unincorporated organization, uh, you know, a volunteer, a board member, uh, uh, someone who just donates to organizations, there will be an opportunity for you to speak up around these issues. So whether it's talking to your city councilor, your MP, your MPP, mostly your MP, or, you know, those in the philanthropic space, your donors, your board members, speak up, tell them that it's absolutely disgusting that you are doing your job while the philanthropic community has amassed over $85 billion in charitable assets, right? While you are living grant to grant, while you are dealing with wave after wave of new crises, speak to your donors, tell them to step up or get out of the way. Speak to your MP, tell them to make these legislative changes, find a home for the charitable sector in the federal government of Canada, um, implement Justice Fund's six pillars of philanthropic reform, which you can find on our website. Um, I think, you know, we have an opportunity right now to reimagine how we want our next 50 years of Canadian philanthropy to be. So speak up or get left behind. Mm -hmm. So, so important. And again, I think to your point, we have a very strong collective presence. It's so easy to feel, to, to not feel that, to feel stuck in the day to day. And I really don't want to um, minimize that experience of being 
you know, an executive director or a programming staff in a small organization where there's three people and, and it, it can feel really hard and it can feel like we know that there's power dynamics and philanthropy and it feels like we're on the powerless side. And so that's when we need to start to come together and reach out, connect with other organizations, connect with Jonas and the Justice Fund. Um, are there any other resources? So you're doing this work. Have you found any partners? Have you found anyone else? Um, let's talk about in Canada and in the States where, so I obviously go to the Justice Fund, justicefund.ca, right? And check out what they're doing. But Jonas, where else can we start to equip ourselves with more information um, and, and even find sort of virtual gathering spaces for us to connect with other organizations? Because I do know that that experience is often very lonely and uh, it feels very isolated. Absolutely. You know, there's... I mentioned them before, you know, the Circle on Philanthropy, they're doing such brilliant, brilliant work. Uh, I would recommend that you folks check them out. Um, you know, our friends at Makeway are doing some interesting work with shared platforms and working with non-qualified donees, um, which is very interesting and exciting. Um, I think, you know, our friends at uh, New Power Labs are doing some interesting work around impact investing that I've would recommend folks check out our friends at Sassy are doing some bold, bold, innovative work around um, inclusion, diversity, and equity within the financial space as well. So, you know, there there are organizations that are doing very fascinating work. There are organizations that are trying to um, build the future that we want to see, and you know, mobilize the rest of Canadians to help build that future. Um, so, I would recommend everybody check them out. Obviously, keep checking us out on our website. Um, we'll have more information in the next little while. And uh, there will be a significant campaign to reform philanthropy. So I call on all your readers and viewers to join us because when that moment comes, we better hit them like a wave. Mm. Well, you can count on us to spread to spread that information when it's available. Jonas, thank you so much for having this important conversation, obviously with us, but you know, uh, within the sector, I think it's... Uh, long overdue. And uh, hopefully, as you said, we're at this sort of pivotal point where we can actually all speak up together and see some, hopefully see some good changes. So uh, just a, one last reminder, where can our listeners connect with you and learn more about this work? Absolutely. First and foremost, thank you for having me and letting me rant. Um, check us out on justicefund.ca. You can follow us on Justice Fund. TO on social media, whether it's Instagram or Twitter, um, and keep, keep out for our campaigns. Yay. Thank you, Jonas. And thank you to you, our listeners. We will see you again next week and uh, keep up the amazing work you do. Have a good one. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.